The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. <laughs> All right. Nice to hear those welcomes, and I hope that, hope that you'll feel free to continue that after the service and, and say hello to some people, introduce yourself, uh, meet some new friends. We continue in our, in our Advent worship. Remember, Advent is a time of uh, celebration of and, and expectation for the coming of Christ to humanity, uh, into humanity for all of us. And with the coming of Christ, the fullness of God and His blessing uh, to all who find their rest in Jesus. And so we continue to reflect on God's Word, and, um, and every week we get closer to closer to celebrating the birth of Christ. Today we're reading from Isaiah, in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 2. You can find your, find your place with us as we go to God's Word. Let's read. Isaiah 9, verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice because you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. As we mentioned last week that Christmas offers to us the most unsuperficial and unsentimental view of reality for our lives. And Christmas is not just, it is not a, a metaphor for a better way to live. It is not a metaphor for existing in a time of, of self-improvement, but it is the news that God has come to save us through sending His Son, Jesus. Christmas is reported news of, events that, of an event that actually happened. And to the degree that we embrace this, uh, and behold it, and grasp it, and treasure uh, the meaning of what had happened, and, and let it go deep into our hearts and apply it to all of our lives, will be to the degree that we experience deep an unshakable joy. And our joy has a cause. Our joy has a cause. It, 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 the joy is there because of a reason. And that our joy also has an expression to be lived out in a life of faith in everything that we do. And last week we said that Jesus is real, so we don't have to look elsewhere for salvation. Jesus is real. That is, that is the cause of our joy. And so we don't have to look elsewhere for salvation. We can rest in Jesus. And that's the expression of our joy. It is expressed in resting in Christ and stopping having to look uh, for help. And so this week, we look at another cause and expression of our joy, and that is this. Jesus is great, so we don't have to be in control. This is what Christmas means. The cause of our joy is that Jesus is great, and the expression of our joy is that we don't have to be in control. We give control to God. We rest in His 
in his, in his greatness and all that he has done, that he is a God is in control and we can trust in him. And so let's break it down as we look at our scripture this morning. And that is first, that Jesus is great. One of the great snapshots of Christ in the Old Testament is, is, is a mention of him that he would be like this great light, that he would be like a light that would pierce into the darkness. And where there was darkness, it would, there would be illumination and darkness would be no more. It's why we cover the inside and outside of our houses this time of year with lights and strings of lights. It's why we put a, a, a tree in, in our living room and put lights all around it. It's the reason why we have a, a, an illuminated, big illuminated Olaf in our front yard. <laughs> Just me? No, you too? <laughs> Please, have my kids grow up so we can take that down. Um, it's why we do that. You, you cannot be too obnoxious with Christmas lights this time of year. I mean, even if you go like full Clark Griswold, it is not too obnoxious. <laughs> there is, there's, no rule, there's no rule against too much lights at Christmas. Lights are not just decorative. They're, they're um, symbolic. They're symbolic of light piercing the darkness. Where there's, and it's most beautiful at nighttime, of course. The lights are most beautiful and most fun to look at. Darkness in the Bible refers to sin and ignorance in the presence of, of suffering and injustice and abuse of power, homelessness, racism, addiction, endless grief. It's, it's all of that and more. Darkness. It's all of those things and, and much more. But darkness doesn't just mean all of those bad things and all of those oppressive things and all of the things that make us grieve. Gar darkness also refers to um, when we don't know something. It, it also refers to being in the dark, right? It being ignorant, not really having the answers. We don't know how to cure it. We don't know how to cure the things that, that grieve us. That is also darkness. We try and we try, but the suffering continues. We try to change our mind and to change our thoughts onto something more positive, but the, the suffering lingers. We try to become a better person and turn over a new leaf and start a new chapter in our life. There's even artificial things like in the change of a new year that makes us feel like, okay, now this year is a new thing. But we find ourselves in the same spot every year, every February 1st. We find that it doesn't work anymore. And so darkness means not just the suffering and the pain of this life, but it also means we don't know how to fix it. And we keep trying. The Bible speaks about this darkness that pervades every area of society and every area of of self, so much so that no measure of human ingenuity or intelligence or legislature can fix the darkness in our hearts. It cannot fix the problem in the world. It cannot fix the problem that rests deep in our soul. And here's where it says Jesus is a light. Jesus is the light that has come into the darkness. To say that Jesus is light that comes into darkness is to say that Jesus is the answer and he is the solution to the darkness that we experience, both in our society and in our soul, both in the things that happen in the world that grieve us and in ourself that, that we wish we could just be better at. He has the truth. To say that he is the light means to say that he has the truth and he, and he has the means to do what he has to do to solve the problems that, that we suffer that, that cause us great suffer. Think of the analogy of driving a car at night. It doesn't matter how well you know engineering. It does not matter how 
uh, how much you know about how a, uh, a combustion engine works. It does not matter if your car is worth $2,000 or $200,000. Without headlights, you're going to crash. Okay? And it does not matter. And so it's when, when the lights come on that we need in order to know the way. The lights, the headlights at night are required so we do not crash. And it doesn't matter how good your car is or how good you are as, as an operator of that car. And Isaiah says that not only is Jesus a light, not only is he this light that brings clarity, but he says that he is a great light. He is a great light. And this changes the meaning quite a bit. He doesn't just prophesy as Jesus coming in, among other things, that coming to shine a light and bring clarity to pain in this world, as many people do and many religions do. He says, a great light is coming. And when something is great, it is bigger, it is better, it is more valuable than other things, it's more powerful, more numerous, more remarkable, more exceptional, more outstanding, more notable, more significant, more consequential, more distinguished, more noble. It is unusual or considerable in degree, power, and intensity. I'm just reading from the dictionary. This is like, <laughs> this is what it means to be great. And we don't usually mean, we don't usually talk about, we don't use that word great in the sense that this means it. It is very, very good. And if it's truly great, there is nothing else like it. There is nothing else like it, nothing that can match it. And that's what Isaiah is saying. A guide is not coming to show you a way. One of many different paths is not going to come. A great light is coming. There is nothing quite like it. It's important to remember that we often devalue words, as we even talked about last, last week. We might finish a really good meal and say, that steak was so great. We might say stuff like that. It might have been a good steak, but I, it's hard to believe that that was a great steak, that it was most, uh, most exceptional. This is, most, this is a most notable steak. This is a most noble steak. I have not had anything quite like it. That's what we're saying when something is great. It might, it might even be the best steak you've ever had, but steak is not great in the same way that God is great. Steak is not great in the way that Jesus is great. Someone to ask you how you're doing, and you said, great. I mean, you should congratulate them, because <laughs> you have never met them in a better place than they are at that moment. That's what it means to be great. When we use a common phrase, like, can you shed some light on this matter? I don't want to be left in the dark. You understand more of what, what, what Jesus would do, who he would be, and what he would come to accomplish. When, when Isaiah says, a great light is coming into the darkness. See, we talk in just common words like that. Hey, can you shed some light on this? I don't want to be left in the dark. I don't know what to do, and I need some help. Can you help me? To say that Jesus is a great light is to say that the world is a dark place, and we will never find our way without him. We can understand half of that pretty well. The world is a dark place, and we know that. We know that at every turn, we wake up and we're reminded of it, we go to sleep, and it troubles us at how dark the world is. But the hope that is given to us because of Christmas is that, but Jesus has come, we cannot find our way without him, but you can be of good cheer because a great light has come into the darkness, not only to rid the world of the suffering and the grieving, but also to, to give clarity, to give truth, to give wisdom to give understanding, and to give hope 
to everyone who suffers in darkness. Everyone who walks in darkness and bangs themselves into a wall and just turns to banging into another wall and is just wanting to find a, find a light. The light at the end of the tunnel is a glimmer of hope. Well, a great light is coming. Going further into our passage, the prophecy describes what this great light would be. So great, well, what is this great light? He's a great light, and, and, and how, how so? How is he exceptional? How is, how is this child to be born most notable, most noble, most exceptional, most consequential? How will this light be like nothing else we've ever seen? And Isaiah so beautifully and poetically describes the kind of character and the extent of the character and greatness of Christ. Isaiah calls him, let's go through these uh, rather concisely. Isaiah calls him wonderful counselor, mark of his greatness. He will be wonderful counselor. It brings us to the memory of the times that you were grieving and a kind word was spoken to you by a trusted and loving friend who was able to bring comfort to a situation that no one else could bring. You know that moment, and I know I've been in these moments, you know that moment when you have experienced deep, deep grief, emotional pain. Something happens where the worst of your sobbing is over and you take that last deep breath where you're about to turn, you know, like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're just, you're just like broken down, but then you take that last deep breath and it turns you feel like your emotions have turned. You feel like your head has been lifted. It often comes from, that, from something, a kind word, a kind gesture, a kind presence of a friend. You feel that there's a counselor with you, that even in the midst of that suffering, that, that you're not alone. To say that Jesus is that, that he is that, that, he is that wonderful counselor. He, he is the most perfect giver of good words. He is the most perfect giver of of sound wisdom in our time of need. He knows what to say and, and how to say it that will, that will bring us comfort. In our deep anguish, we, we cry out for a single word. Just give me a word. Give me a look in my direction. Cast your eyes on me. Let me know that I'm not alone. Uh, touch me in a comforting way. And Jesus is the highest and most wonderful counselor, and there's no one like him. No one comforts like Christ. No one's words have the substance and ability to lift our heads like Jesus is. He heals us with his words of truth and words of hope, and he, gives, and he, gives, he goes with us where no earthly friend can go. I think of the counselor. I think of the times in counseling that I've been in. I think of that, that when you're, that someone mediating for you, like, hey, help me, help me work through this. And then after that session, you go home and you go back to your problems, and, and no, no earthly counselor can follow you through everything. But Jesus is this wonderful counselor that goes with us where no one else can go. Walks with us through our shadows, through our darkness, walks with us through our grief, continues to feed us with his words and his presence. He's such a wonderful counselor. No one is like him. Isaiah says that he's also mighty God. You know, for the, the danger of thinking that, that Jesus is just a really, really good friend and nothing more. It's good that Isaiah says, but wait a minute. He is also mighty God. Because we have seen that we live in darkness. And the darkness is so evil, so dangerous, it's so powerful, so pervasive. A human friend, no matter how much our friends love us and can give us good words, they can't help us. 
No matter how comforting a friend is in your life, they cannot help you with your greatest need. They cannot help you with your greatest problem that rests in your soul because they cannot defeat the, the powers of evil and darkness, and neither can you. And so there's something that we need more than just a really good friend. We do have a friend in Jesus, but there's something more that we need. We need a warrior. We need a warrior God who can defeat this. And in Christ, there is abundance of protection and security in his salvation that he brings. Jesus is God, and, and being God, hear this, being God, there is no struggle and no enemy too overpowering for Christ. You can't say that about a friend. You can't say that about anyone in your life. Everyone has their limits. Everyone has their limits of character, of energy, of wisdom, and there is no limit to Christ. He has the strength and security of, and the power of our salvation that nothing can overpower it. He is mighty God. He wants us to know that not only is he a friend that has a hand who can touch us and comfort us when we are weary, that same hand crushes our enemies. And he knows when to use which. It's difficult when that powerful hand crushes us when we need to be comforted. It's difficult when that hand is used against our enemies that is insufficient. Jesus knows exactly when to use that hand to touch, to bring comfort, and to crush our enemies so that it stops pursuing us. Jesus is mighty God, and he can do that. He is also everlasting Father. Not to be confused with God the Father, but he is everlasting Father. Jesus is to us a Father who does not leave us as orphans, but leads us and guides us. Uh, he is our salvation. Our salvation is found in Christ. Our salvation is only as secure as Jesus himself, and he is everlasting. Not only is one as a father who, who guides us and protects us, he is everlasting father. He never changes. This should cause us to dwell deeply on the fact that as, as culture changes, as our emotions change multiple times throughout the day, as finance changes, as, as, as relationships change, our God does not change. He is everlasting Father. Our hope does not rest in the certainty of our circumstances, but our, our hope rests in the certainty of a God who, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is, this, that is Jesus. That is who Jesus is. The final characteristic of Jesus' greatness is that he is called the Prince of Peace. Here with Isaiah's final title for Jesus, he is showing us that Christ will be the cause of our full and perfect rest. Because the world is so dark, because chaos follows sin, and as sin is defeated, rest comes with it. Joy comes with Christ. And He is the cause of our full rest. He is a cause of our full and final and perfect rest. And it leads us to the next half of our title. Because Jesus is great, we don't have to be in control. Think about it. Think about this. The content of the prophecy paints a picture for us really well for this great light who has come into the world to pierce through darkness is not just, it's not just the cause. There's, a, there's, a, there's an expression of this. So what? So what? The, the darkness has gone away. What does that mean for me? 
And, and Isaiah paints a picture for what that will mean. He paints a picture using uh, a very um, realistic um, experience at the time. Isaiah depicts men who have, are blood-drenched in their clothes from war. They live in darkness, meaning they live in fear and uncertainty and weariness and vulnerability. They live in grief of fallen friends and soldiers. They live in, uh, in chaos, the chaos of war. Imagine how difficult it must be for a soldier in battle. Imagine the fear, the vulnerability, the uncertainty. Imagine the pain. Imagine the darkness, the dark times, the dark nights, the dark mornings of not knowing what will happen. I, may, I know many who, once removed from battle, forever feel like their life still exists in a battle, follows them wherever they go, torments them. They struggle with the fears that they, that were, that were, that they found on the battlefield, carry with them to the, forever. They're tormented by the memories of war. It causes anxiety. It causes fear. It causes uncertainty. And Isaiah says, but Christ, in the midst of that, Christ turns the lights on. He turns the lights on in the darkness and gives us rest so we don't have to be afraid. Come home last night. The babysitter says, your son had a nightmare. He was really afraid. I turned on his closet light, and he's okay now. Jesus comes into the darkness. He turns the light on in the midst of our chaos. The real message of Christmas never says, for a season, remember, cast your fears aside and focus on the good things. Cast your fears aside. There's times for that pain, but now is a time for joy. But instead, Christmas says, your fears are real and there is darkness in the world, but light has come in to defeat the darkness. So you don't have to brush your problems under the rug. You don't have to ignore your fears. You can take them head on, knowing that Christ has, has come in as a great light to walk with you. He has promised perfect and complete defeat of darkness and sin. Isaiah does not say struggle in this world are just figments of your imagination. But he says the struggle is so bad but it will soon be put to an end because of this great miracle of Christmas. So much so that even, and here's why I love what Isaiah says, even so, even the instruments of war will be turned into instruments of joy. The blood-covered uniforms, the boots that the soldiers are wearing in battle are now going to be used for fire to warm you on cold nights. The instruments that once brought memory of grief and pain and loss are now going to be instruments of light. This is profound, if you can hear it. Your wrinkles may now be an expression of your hard-fought battles in life, but when Christ comes, they will somehow be used to display God's faithfulness. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm going to be shining that bright. <laughs> the instruments that you wear on your face, the wrinkles that you wear on your face to show you the life, the battles of life that you have experienced and the aging of your body will somehow be used to show God's greatness and faithfulness. The tears that have been shed in anguish and grief over a child 
will be evidence of God's never-ending faithfulness. The instruments of pain inflicted against you, shame, abuse, neglect, will be like musical instruments turned into praise of God's faithfulness. The things, the instruments that are turned against you right now that seek to bring you harm will one day be instruments used to praise God. That is what Isaiah is saying in such graphic terms. He's looking at these soldiers and the soldiers are saying, you're telling me this is good? I'm covered in blood and I don't know if it's my blood, my friend's blood or my enemy's blood. How is this good? And he's saying one day those blood-soaked clothes and the boots that your feet have worn through are going to be turned into, into praises to God. We, we don't know how, and we don't have to know how, but this is the beautiful message that we have, the hope that we have. Even more than that, your, your weapons and instruments of war will be used for fire and light. For one primary reason, you don't need them anymore. I don't need these boots. I don't need these clothes. I don't need these, these weapons to help me feel in control and to fight these battles because Jesus is fighting them for me, and one day I won't even need to fight at all. They're going to be useless. I'm going to, I'm going to throw them in the fire, and that fire is going to bring warmth and light. Isaiah is saying, you can lay them down. A time will come where you can lay them down. You can toss them away. This is peace. This is really what peace looks like. I don't need this anymore. I don't need these weapons. I don't need to grasp tightly at my life. I don't need to make sure everything goes well. I don't need to manage people's expectations of me. I don't need to please everyone. I don't need to be in control. I don't need to get everything right. I don't need to say the right thing. I don't need to grieve the right way. I don't need to have the right knowledge. I don't need it all. I don't need any of it. One day we will not need any of that. And all of those things that have caused anxiety, we'll, we'll, we, will, we will have memory of them, but they will be used as instruments of praise. Our peace in the midst of our suffering and our peace from the effects of sin will not, only come, will not come from our own strength, it will not come from our own weapons, but through someone else. And that's what Isaiah says. So how does this peace come? Well, it's not going to come through your weapons, and you can throw away your weapons, you can throw away your blood-soaked clothes, it's going to come through someone else. Okay, what does it come through? What, who's it coming through? It's going to come through this little child that's being born. Isn't this interesting? He's talking about war to, he goes, he goes from the war room to the maternity ward. What an interesting turn of events. The only way you can truly know Christmas and the joy that Christ brings is to admit that it's an undeserved grace apart from your own doing. It comes from outside of us. It comes from this child that is born. It comes from God who has come into the world. It comes from Emmanuel. It comes from this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Christmas, of course, is a time of giving gifts. We know this, and it's easy for us to think about. It's easy for us to make that transition from, well, Christmas is a time of giving gifts, and, and we have this gift in Christ. And that is very, very true, obviously. Christmas is a time of giving gifts. There are times, though, I've gotten gifts that I never really wanted and never asked for. You ever got that before? And I ended up returning them for something else. But there are also times, so there's two times. There's times you get gifts that you never wanted, never asked for, and you end up returning them for something you asked for. And then there's times you get gifts that you never asked for, never wanted, but those gifts turned out to be really special. 
You never knew you wanted it. You never asked for it. But now that you have it, you can't imagine living without it. There's some gifts like that that I have gotten. Uh, one small gift that I got that was like this was a, a pack of bookmarks shaped like flower petals. And I thought, why on earth? Do they, no one knows me. <laughs> and these flower petals, they're little plastic stems, and they had flower petals sticking out. And I'm like, okay, fine, I'll use it. I mean, I don't want to insult anybody, so I use it. So these flower petals are constructed in such a way that you place them in the binding of your book, and the flower petals have a strength to them that when you have your book closed, it stays closed. But when you open it like this, the petals push the page open where it was. These things are the most coolest, the most amazing things I have ever had. Most special gift anyone has ever given to me. So many, you know, kids are like, oh, what are these? Don't touch that, that's daddy's. Don't touch his flower petals. Those are mine. Never knew I wanted it, never asked for it. Makes me really happy. Now, Jesus, we talk about Christ as the gift that has come. He's the gift that has been given to us. And if we're honest, we don't think we, we, we actually would never ask for this gift. And honestly, when we, when we look at what the gift is, we don't really want it. But when we understand it, it becomes the, thing we very, the very thing we, we always needed, never knew we needed. That's the gift of Christmas. This is the way Christ is. When we think deeply on Christ, he's probably, we will probably find him a little insulting. Because Christmas reveals how bad we really are that we couldn't do it on our own. Uh, it reveals that we're so bad that we needed a savior. Think about this, we are so bad that God had to send his own son to die and that was the only way. That's pretty bad. That, that means that, that, that there was nothing less that God can do that would satisfy our badness. That's pretty bad. It reveals that we're so ignorant and broken that we need a wonderful counselor to come and bring us truth. It means that we are so blockheaded and we would on our own never get to an understanding of, of how to be saved and why we need to be saved without him coming and telling us. We are so in danger of loving the world that we need a mighty God to fight our battles because we are so prone to walking into battles that will ultimately kill us. We need a God who will defend us and fight for us because we are so tempted to love the things that kill us. We're so fickle in our feelings that we need an everlasting father. We change so much that we need someone that comes in and says, okay, I'm not going to change. And that's why you need me because you're changing every minute. We are so restless that we need a prince of peace to bring peace in the midst of chaos. Do you realize this? This is not a gift that we ask for. And it's not a gift that we want. And when we look at Christ and we really see what it means, it, is, it's, it can be very insulting because it's a reflection on who we are. It's also a reflection on who God is, how good he is, how great he is, how wonderful he is. To give a, give a person a gift and to give us a gift that we never asked for, yet we absolutely need. That's the kind of gift that Christ is. There's never been a gift like Jesus. There's never been a gift like Jesus to offend us so much, yet to be everything that we have always needed. We don't need to be in control because Jesus is in control and he is great. 
And there's so many ways that we attempt and try to be in control. We try to control everything. We try to control our spouses, our children, our jobs, our money. We try to control what other people think of us. We try to control even our feelings and how we engage in things, whether they're joyful things or painful things. We try to control everything. Pastors sometimes try to control their churches. People I've heard about, you know. Pastors control their churches. They control the people in their church. People in their church sometimes try to control their pastors. People I've heard about. It's a never-ending cycle. It's a never-ending cycle. Everybody wants to be in control. And there's nothing quite terrifying as feeling that you're out of control. Jesus comes on Christmas and he says, you're out of control. You're out of control, but I'm great. It's okay to be out of control. You can trust me. I am like nothing else you have ever seen. Jesus is great. He is great. He is stronger than our fears and our enemies. He is more valuable than our riches. He is more wise than our own ideas. He is more wonderful than any words spoken to cheer us up. There is no one like Jesus. We can trust him. We can give up control. Pastor Tim Keller in New York, uh, in his book about Christmas called The Hidden Christmas, he says this, Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the birth, perfect obedience, death, and resurrection of the Son of God himself could save us. Nothing less. This is how far gone we are, that we needed Christmas. It's how far out of control we are, that we needed a great Savior. To accept this gift, you have to admit you're a sinner, that you need grace, that you need to give up control over your life and over, over your own way towards peace and salvation. You cannot find rest in Christ's salvation until, until you give up your belief that you can save yourself. You cannot find true rest in your salvation until you give up your idea that what gets salvation is you just getting your act together, being a better Christian, being smarter, being skilled, being of greater character, being more like Jesus even, to really enjoy the rest that comes with Christmas is to give up your control to save yourself. This is the essence of what Christmas means and nothing less that we are so far gone, but we have a great God who has come to rescue us. Do you believe this to be true? Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's the condition of the world, that it's the condition of your heart? At least admitting that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in darkness here. I'm in darkness as I look at my own soul, as I'm prone, my soul is in darkness as I'm prone to sin. Why do I love sin so much? Why do I love being in control so much? Why do I love making things all about me? Why do I love pursuing my own desires, even if they are not God's desires? And then admitting, God, I'm in darkness because I don't know the way out of this. I have tried every, every recipe in the book and still comes out tasting bad. The last verse I want, to, that I want you to see, and that's how Isaiah ends his comments in verse 7 about Jesus. Look at that. Look at that in verse 7. He says, just so, so simply, and then he just ends. He says, the zeal of the Lord will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is so good. So good. This is saying that there, 
is a fire of enthusiasm and determination for your salvation in Christ that never goes away. This is so good. My zeal burns out all the time. My passion, my enthusiasm for good things burn out all the time. Think about the things you were excited about 10 years ago. Are you still excited about those things? If you've been married more than 10 years, then say yes. <laughs> but, but think about other things, passions. That's why I'll never get a tattoo. Not because I'm against them. I, I change my mind so much, I'll, I'll never like it. Does your zeal burn out? Does your zeal burn out for Jesus? Does your enthusiasm for your own personal sanctification burn out? Does your enthusiasm for your own, for, for your own salvation burn out? Are there days that you just don't want to be a Christian? Are there days that you wonder if it's really worth it? Do you realize that Jesus has never slowed down in his passion and determination for you? Not once. His zeal never burns out. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish your peace and salvation, period. What does that mean? This is so good. Are you tired? Are you tired of of, of the grief in the world? And do you long for a day when peace is brought to the world and you finally get rest from your struggles with sin and the effects of sin? Then hear this. Your passion for that is not greater than Jesus' passion for that. He wants that more than you. You don't even hold a candle to it. Are you sick of the pain in the world? Jesus is sicker. Are you grieved by the sadness in the world? Jesus is grieved more. Are you excited about being with Jesus one day? He is more excited than you. He wants to be with you more than you want to be with him. And he hates the pain in the world more than you do. That's the great God who has come to save us and says then to us, you can trust me. And we say, why can I trust you? And he says, because I will never give up. Never give up. I will never slow down. I will never take a break. I will never sleep until you are safely in my arms and sin is no more. What a great God. Bottom line, he has not given up on you. And given another chance, he would do it again. After all that he has been through, Dorothy Sayers, author, says this, he himself, speaking of Jesus, he himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born into poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it all well worth his while. Jesus did it once and given another chance, which he doesn't have to have another chance, and another chance is not needed, but hypothetically, given another chance, he would do it all again for you. That's the kind of God who says you don't have to be in control. You don't have to cling tightly. You don't need to be in control of history because he controls history. You don't need to be in control of your family because he controls your family. He is Lord over it. We don't need to be in control of our employees or the pace of our own personal growth 
because he's not giving up on us. Our God is in control of it all. We need to trust him. He is a great light that never goes out, even when everything else around us fades. Let's trust him and let's pray.